Welcome to our struggle podcast. Yayatir Lauren Tashera. Yayatir Drew Oringer. What was the phrase that they use the uh, American Stoker podcast? Uh, uh, hi, welcome to our struggle pod, our struggle American literature podcast. American secret. Yeah, yeah, they're Lauren Tashera. Yeah, yeah, they're Etamin co-host. Etamin co-host. That's like Russian. What was the name of the publication again? Dagens Nerslif. Actually, how do you say this in Norwegian? How do you say we the should, name of it? We should take some time to formally thank them for giving us a... I tried emailing the guy, but it like bounced me back because I guess he filters out like foreign emails. Uh, oh, I followed him on Twitter. Find him on Twitter. Yeah. DM him. Okay, how do I say this? And maybe Wikipedia will tell me how to say it. Falcon's Nairs. How to pronounce. This has got to be a way to find this. Falcon's Nairs. Falcon's Dagens Nadingsliv. Thank you to Kristen G.J., who is a female from Norway who pronounced this on Forvo.com, which is a website where um, all of the world, all of the words in the world. Oh, oh I pronounced. love that. And they get they get like yeah. locals to pronounce them for you. It's nice. I think that's like a nice utopian project. It's a, it really is a utopian project. They, 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 it's good if you don't know how to pronounce a writer's name and you have anxiety, yeah. but. Because you're going to come off of some yokel who doesn't know how to say Proust or some shit. Or Kanazgard. Who knows? The only Dog two writers Yes, thank you. How do you Dog I don't even know how to say What is thank you? We uh, we should deliver it's a formal... Tuck, tuck. Yeah, tuck. Tuck to the Financial Times. Tuck. We would like to say a warm tuck to um, Simon... What's his name again? Seaman. How do you say his name? I don't know. I was already struggling with all the proper nouns in this section of my struggle. I was <laughs> starting to I was starting to dread reading all the fucking street names. I know. Well, that's They're what we're like gonna do on this episode, folks. We're just gonna go to um oh. this website and learn how to pronounce every street name in Stockholm that's said in the time. <laughs> Simon. I mean, you just need to have a resident third Mike Norwegian his name is Simon v, v I don't know what the V stands for and I don't know how you pronounce that in Gonshart Simon v. I'm sure we're saying something Simen. like really offensive right now <laughs> yeah you just you but, just cursed um, his mother or something a warm a warm talk to you Simon because I thought that was a wonderful write-up uh, I thought you perfectly captured our um kind of the ethos of our podcast. And I hope, you know, I did try to email you, but it did bounce me back because I was a barbarian, um, you know, Yankee. So, you know, just reach out if you can. I'd love to chat with you. Maybe, you know, have you on the pod. We'd love to have yeah. more real Norwegians, especially those who like us, presumably. It would be great to so, have a discuss- discussion about our, our reception in the homeland. Hi, you welcome in. Hi, hey, welcome in. Hey. Anyway, we welcome in. We welcome in you. We we welcome in you. We welcome in you. Yeah. Latter day Vikings. Yeah. Thank you. I would like for to listening. wait. Let's look up a picture of Seaman and see if he has a pissed face, Viking pissed face. Maybe it's a, they're uh, 
excessive smoked fish intake. That makes them look so pissed. It's like yeah, a little overdose kinda, of mercury. Yeah, it's a mercury overdose or a too much smoked herring and snus. Yeah. But you don't see many you don't see many um obese Norwegians. No, I mean actually we haven't really been there, so it's hard to say, right? They all just seem very elongated and, and kind of robust, healthy. <laughs> To me, I found a picture of Seaman. He looks nice. He looks nice. He does not look pissed. He looks. It's a selfie, and he appears to be at some kind of um, sports game. I wonder what compelled him to write that article. I know. What's the story behind the Seaman? Can you? Was it a slow news day? What What was going on? Oh, I found another picture of a Scandinavian-looking guy with an eye patch. Kanazgard kind of deserves an eye patch. He does. It's kind of. He almost has. He really does. He has like an implicit eye patch right now. Yeah, he has an implicit eye patch. He really does. He may as well make it concrete and visible. I, if he ever comes on the pod, I'm going to make him wear an eye patch. I think you would love that. Just say here, here's your eye patch. Well, I'll wear eye patches. (laughs) I mean, I probably, if I've had my surgery, my second eye surgery at that point, I will have a natural eye patch. So. Oh, that's sick. Remember when everyone was trying to be a pirate? (laughs) When was that? Like when we were in college, it was sort of a trend for, you know, some guys would become piratical, like swashbuckling, at least in their aesthetic. Um, (laughs) There were were more aesthetical pirates running amok, running around. I don't know what happened to them. And yeah, hmm. I can't say I remember that, but... They, yeah. It was in uh, featured in some move films and media. Mm. Um, I never got on that that ship myself. That, yeah, and I don't now remember that ship, you having a pirate face. No, that that ship has sailed. Yeah. Okay. Good one there. See where I see where you went with that. Thank you. Yeah. So ever so much. We've been doing so much You're, press today. We've been on a practical. I know. Today. We've been on a yeah. I've junket. Is, yeah, with, I know. Gotta, now I know what celebrities gotta, are talking about when they're like, it's so exhausting to do press junkets. I know. I actually did the same thought. Yeah. I got to I gotta hit the grocery store. I have a really busy day. A bunch of yeah. interviews <laughs> featured in a zine. Um, <laughs> talking to Lauren Mechlin's children later. Um, <laughs> I gotta then we gotta actually record yeah. a pod because the know, audience is getting pretty desperate. I know. We've have released zero content this month. Well, the irony well, we know that's not really the case because I know. Well it's we not been released. released. Yeah, it's not that we haven't we produced zero content, but we've but we did zero content. We did there was labor. It just didn't see the light of day. I know. But here we are, al- al- just al- us boys al- again. Alas, 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 and the lack. People forget about a lack. I feel like Alaska gets the lion's share all the attention, but but a lack is, I think, equally potent, if not more, of yeah. a verbal exclamation. Let's bring back a lack. Let's bring back a lack. Are you a, <laughs> are you back. on team Alas or team Alack right now? <laughs> Bert back Alack. <laughs> You know what album I'm really obsessed with? Um, what? Bird Bacharach and um, Elvis Costello did it. Oh, you're into that? I, isn't yeah. that The River? No, the river it's, called, like that? Um, it's called Painted from Memory. They may have done oh, more than shit. one. 
Yeah. Painted from memory is also a, a sort of a motif of our pod in a sense. Um, that's cool. Yeah. I, I'm a huge, yeah. that's funny because I'm like an Elvis Costello devotee, but I haven't listened you to that album. That? That's no. weird because I'm addicted to Elvis Costello. I'm obsessed with that album. Hold on. We're going to, we've now entered the music portion of our friend of the pod, Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello. Yeah. I'm like preoccupied with that dude's music. Open but, uh, invitation. Talk about a preciously deranged dude. <laughs> really, Elvis He's Costello. He's a really guy. He's... <laughs> oh, yeah. They have so many... Um, yeah, it's called Painted from Memory. It came out in 1998. But I think that's when Elvis Costello kind of poses as a crooner, and that kind of annoys me. Oh, really? I like crooning. I don't like his crooning mode. I like his, like, <laughs> screaming, <laughs> snarling mode. Yeah. You don't like this? I don't know, I don't... Now you're getting Viking Chris face. No, I would never be pissed at Elvis The only thing with him is that I tend to like him less in his crooner mode. Interesting. But but if it's Elvis Costello, the lyrics alone would interest me. I really like his album King of America. Okay. Which is his kind of like his Americana album, although he actually returned to that. But also, I mean, all the all the early stuff, naturally, this year's model, Armed Forces, Something the debut. And then, I've been listening to um, I, Jonathan, on repeat all week. All week. Oh, with Jonathan Richmond? Yeah. Yeah, that actually... He he also seems in line with the pod because his songs are kind of kookily essayistic. Yeah, and they and, a lot of mundane detail. I mean, he has a sense of like his like childish wonderment. Uh, his sort of odd naivete always is there, um, which is somewhat affected. But but even the way is a lot of his phrasings are like kind of conversational and almost seem to break free from familiar patterns. I think there's also um, a fascination with the, like the nature of experience and to what extent it, like a lot of reflecting on his own reflections about his experience. Yeah. If that makes like, sense. Like yeah, in the song, um, what, what is that song? That summer feeling. Exactly. He talks feeling. about, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very Canals guardian. He well, says, it's because, did you love her? Yeah. Or did you love the way you were? Yeah, I mean, it seems like simple, naive nostalgia, but then he kind of questions that. Yeah, but it's also like a literary exercise. Yeah. And it's questioning to what extent. You pick these things apart. They're not that appealing, right? It's like constructing a myth. Yeah, yeah. It's about the construction of our own life stories. Of that summer feeling, which is actually not as 
pure as it seems, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the rest cannot be tamed. That summer feeling is gonna haunt you the rest of your life. It's more about being haunted by the idea of a summer feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's even odd to take a song called The Summer Feeling, but the refrain is, it's gonna haunt you. Yeah. But the construction of the song is so, like, bare bones and, like, pure. It's, it seems like it should be about something more pure. Right. Oh, it, it has that nostalgic, mm. innocent sound, but then counteracts yeah. it with the exploration. Yeah, it's funny. I remember when I was a teenager, I would listen to the Bell and Sebastian song, A Summer Wasting, mm. and think, I wish I had a feeling of summer like that, but really it's just summer's kind of humid and depressing like all the other seasons in BC. Not really, but I wished it could have been more cinematic like that song, I guess. Or maybe Bell and Sebastian gave me an unrealistic expectation. Yeah. But Bell and Sebastian are also somewhat shaded. It's not like they're... they're well, they're Scottish. Yeah. There's always going to be a bit of shading there. Although, actually, they, they do have affinities with Richmond and that kind of seeming childish purity, but, and a kind of odd, like, pre-sexual thing. Yeah, there is a weird, um, yeah, edge between childhood and adolescence positioning. What if the summer's wasted? Well, they're like haunted by se- by sexuality. Yeah. Oh, talk about. Oh my God, Bell and Sebastian. Talk about being haunted by sexuality. Jesus. I mean, that I. What's his name? Stuart Murdoch. Yeah. I mean, he almost wants to retreat from any kind of sexuality, and. Well, the thing is, Scots are the original like ball cells, is what people don't right. realize. Yeah. Between that and. Um, What's that movie I watched? A breaking, breaking the waves. They have mm. such a fucked up relationship with sexuality up there. I think the Highlands just takes it out of you or something. So pleasantly. Yeah, but I guess now that you think about it, the song is also about being haunted by the idea of summer. Yeah, but Bell Sebastian fantastic. The days of um, August reluctant sexuality stuff in it or like the what's the middle distance runner song and then there's a lot of stuff about closeted homosexuals in school or closeted transgenders in school um, yeah and the entirety of the boy with the arab strap album is like tortured sexuality isn't an arab strap a device that like yeah maintains an erection something like that so, I wouldn't know about that. Stuart Murdoch, welcome on the pod. Open invitation. Stuart Murdoch, yeah. let's see the Arab strap in question, the titular strap. Yeah, we'd like to know more about that. And also the loneliness of the middle distance runner. If you could expatiate on that. Oh, that's based on a book, but the loneliness of the long distance runner, which is a really um, good short story 
about ideas that runs. <laughs> oh fuck! I'm reading a book by him. I've been reading a book by him right now, but uh, I already forget it his would name. Have a literary reference in it. God damn it! Well, it's also Alan? a film. Oh, it's by Alan Alan um, Silito, and the story is like narrated in this kind of vernacular as this guy, as this uh, convict runs in a race. It's sort of... Oh, more gay vaguely, convict. More gay... Um, yeah, it's kind of Holden Caulfield, uh, Ian. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, I guess it's a riff on that. But there's also, a, there was also a film that was in fact more famous. Um, the Scots are great at literate, like, indie pop. Yeah, why do they have such a penchant for that? Why are they so... They have, like, their indie pop quality of indie pop per capita is like insane like orange juice orange juice um teenage fan club teenage, teenage fan, fan club, club is the band i was thinking of yeah um who else i guess camera obscura are they from scotland they're kind of in a way a lot of that music is quite precious um not harsh but maybe it's an escapist thing but it's a bit, it's very ironical, you know. It's right. Very, I think there's a bitter. Oh, the Jesus and Mary Chain are orange. Scottish. Oh, they're Scottish? Oh, shit. Yeah, but they, they're like heavy. different. They're more violent yeah. and kind of actually more sensual, but um, mm-hmm. they still are part of that canon. I remember once talking to you about the liner notes of a Bell and Sebastian album in which oh, the talks about taking off his jacket and mailing it to himself. Do you remember what the that? Fuck? I do not I remember, remember that. that. We had both. I don't remember that. Weird liner, these liner notes about Stuart Murdoch taking off his jacket and mailing it to himself while he was out for a walk <laughs> in Edinburgh or whatever. I swear to God, we talked about this. That sounds like a conversation I'd be a part of, but I don't remember it. It happened. Should we get into part mm-hmm. two here? Oh yeah. Right. We can't talk about Scottish indie pop the entire time. No, we could. I mean, we could, yeah, but I feel like... We did make this a Teenage Fan Club episode. Teenage Fan Club Fan Club? Teenage Fan Club Fan Club. I love Orange Juice is my food. Oh, be a conversation prize. I haven't listened to Orange Juice almost at all. Oh, the reason why I was late is my Kindle is running out of charge, and I was trying to find a charge, but I could not. But, um, and I also have not reread the passage in question, but I did the first time I've I read, read it highlight a bunch of stuff. So I guess I can just. Okay. I've read the opening, so I think I'm prepared. Okay. Having sat for some months in a basement room in Akshaw. Okay, let's look up how to pronounce that. We're, gonna, uh, we're just going to go into how to pronounce every <laughs> proper noun in here, okay? Actual. It's actually a rather marvelous moment I do want to talk about in these opening pages, but we'll get there naturally. Why doesn't Wikipedia just have pronunciation inside of it? I think it may. It's not offering me that right now. Actual pronunciation. Okay, Forvo. Again, it's by our friend Quirentia, a female from Sweden. And she says, What? Okisoa. Oh, I guess they don't have the SH sound in Swedish. Oh, what a drag. Okay, well, I'm glad I didn't call it Akshoff like an asshole. 
Orcus yeah. Law. Orcus Law. So, okay. having sat for some months in a basement room in Akusu, one of Stockholm's many satellite, ta- satellite towns, writing what I hoped would be my second novel with the metro a few meters from the window, such that every afternoon after darkness fell, I saw the train cars passing through the woods like a row of illuminated rooms. At the end of 2003, I finally found an office in the center of Stockholm. This begins a long-running drama in his life about where, the location of his office and finding an office, which, you know, he needs to find a room of his own. He does need to find a room of his own. Is this the one with the, all the Uber PC people who refuse to acknowledge that an immigrant Uh-oh. like stole this stuff and he's mad about it? I'm not sure. That's getting too far ahead. You know, he's so he's working on this book but he's having issues with with form somebody tells him that it's it's not a story it's not a novel you have to tell a story I th- another writer tells him but so i think these frustrations lead him in a way to attempt the book that we are reading he also begins this section actually it returns to the very beginning because yeah, in parquet Remember Parquet? This is the return of Parquet. We talked about oh, yeah. this with friend of the pod, Christian Laurentian, about working in a Parquet. Do you know Laurentian is actually from Scandinavia? In that movie I was watching with Stellan Skarsgård, the murder victim is named Tanya Laurentian. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's a really common name. This time around, he's, he's in his new office writing, Christine. And he says, I noticed that the knots in the grain, perhaps two meters from the chair where I was sitting, formed an image of Christ wearing a crown of thorns. Oh, come on, dude. No way. But I, I can't tell if this is a kind of literary connection or <laughs> if he actually had this moment of of what he calls registering this image. He says, I merely registered it, which actually becomes a kind of motif for the next few pages. This is a good passage of his registering, registering a lot of, a lot registering, of things. but not cognizing in this. Book. Right. Yeah. Well, especially in this passage, when he goes out for his cigarette, we get, mm-hmm. we almost enter. I first thought it was something like a, a reverie or a rhapsody, but it's, it's more, it's more of a registration than that, which is to say it's not, tonally um you know in some kind of aura it's not weirdly enough it's not like a uh, reverential or sort of religious as as one might expect mm-hmm. um it to be or at least one might expect uh, a kind of noticing of christ himself to be he really he just says i'm really re- amazingly yeah. commonplace yeah he says this is not something i reacted to I merely right. registered it. For the images like this are found in all buildings, created by irregularities in the floors, walls, doors, and moldings. Here, a damp patch in a ceiling looks like a dog running. There, a worn-through coat of paint on a doorstep looks like a snow-covered valley with a mountain range in the distance, above which clouds appear to be gushing forth. And it it's funny because he writes, I suddenly remembered something that had happened one evening a long time ago. So, and of course, that's the opening of the book, when I've mm-hmm. seen a similar image on the water. So, that's why it seems that that this moment of recognition is leading him, I think, to write 
or to like the first stirrings in yeah, the brain of, 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 this, of this book. The first time because I read he's this. he's struggling is, with is this, this artificial form. Yeah, with the artificial form of the second book that you know he doesn't know what to do with it. He can't really find a form for it. He's frustrated that he even needs to find a form. And then he has the the Madeline moment, so to speak, with with Christ. But it's also in in the floor. But it's odd because it it almost does become like a reverie, but it's sort of like an anti-reverie reverie because he's claiming that he just registered it. It's not like singing to him. But we also know that in some sense... Perhaps it's inspiring him to actually write the book that we're reading. But this is I don't know. 2004. I thought he doesn't start writing My Struggle until a few years later. Yeah, it is. I think that's true. But but you're right. It does seem like this is part of the Russian doll of the My Struggle story of this is a doll outside the outermost doll we didn't yeah. realize existed. I mean, he even yeah, says with the really images came the, at- came the atmosphere from that time of spring, of the housing estate, of the 70s, in other words, of family life as it was then, another litany, a list that is essentially giving us the, the general content of this whole project. And with the, the atmosphere, an almost uncontrollable longing. The uncontrollable longing. That's such a motif, the longing he has. And there's also a strange... The moment where the telephone rings, but we don't we don't know who it is at that moment. The telephone rang, startling. It startled me. Probably Linda being like, "Our baby is." I um, think crying. Yeah, because she does call later. <laughs> Surely no one had my number here. I want to go and back then, to the longing for a second. Go back. Yeah. I think that that always strikes me whenever he talks about the longing because he never usually they say a longing for for, for something, right? There's a um. What a preposition attached to longing, but right. he never has it. He just says it's a longing that afflicts him. And I wonder, and I think a lot of this book is a, is a struggle to articulate that longing into what does he say in the first half? He says, all I've learned is to uh, burn up the longing generated from this in writing. Is the, you know, is it the longing to be a writer? Is it the longing to recapture lost moments? Is it the longing, the Jonathan Richmond longing of, um, a feeling that never was summer feeling the springtime feeling on the housing estate. Yeah, yeah that's I, more powerful than the actual thing. As with Richmond, it seems like it can't simply be an easy nostalgia. I well, mean, that's I why there's more that... longing because it can never right. actually be fulfilled. There's not actually it's not actually associated with an object that happened in real life or with an actual set of circumstances. That just always kills kills me because I relate to that longing, but I also cannot articulate it. Maybe the human desire for enchantment we were talking about earlier today. But it's odd. Yeah, it's it's odd because he also seems to resist. There is a sense of enchantment enchantment here, but especially when he goes out for a cigarette too, he kind of he does what we talked about with Leo Robson, which is to, to itemize things in a way, um, mm-hmm. which is to say it's almost not even as though like he is noticing them because, you know, he's selecting them in a sense to write here, but he's not sensuously bound up with the details really. Um, he's not kind of moving them around in a, in a literary way. He's just, He's almost just um, like 
submitting to them somehow. That's why there, there does almost seem, and he actually uses the word submit somewhere in this passage that I will find. Um, he says that in writing, you need to submit to form. I'm not sure that's what he's doing here. He's almost submitting to a, maybe a kind of formlessness, but uh, it also is a strange moment coming after see his vision, a kind of vision of Christ, which is not really a vision. Yeah. There's something about, yeah, longing and submission. But for some reason, I when I read these moments, I don't feel necessarily, I don't feel like intense longing. There is something curiously, maybe not detached, but. Well, but isn't it. Uh, blank. Doesn't it mean it's the longing to be able to recover those moments and knowing they'll never to call them back? Yeah, I think that's the thing that overwhelms them. Is the over? Yeah, and it is true that he does seem in these moments to to register every little thing, like in his in the immediate aftermath of seeing Jesus, so to speak, and thinking about his childhood. Well, and he also says, I barely remember anything from my childhood. Apart from right. one or two isolated events that Ingva and I have talked about so often, they almost assume biblical proportions. I remembered hardly anything from my childhood. Uh, yeah. That is, I remembered hardly any of the events in it. But I did but remember the I, rooms where yeah. they took place. I could remember all the mm-hmm. places I had been, all the rooms I had been in, just not what happened there. Which again, gets but, into our obsession with place. And also, like, material life. Um Mm-hmm. It's like he remember he remembers the things before the events or even before the people, um, like rooms take on a life of their own almost. Uh, th- things. Yeah, we talked about in the episode with Christian Lorenzen. The room. What did he said? The rooms in the house were hostile to me, or something. I could not remember. He talks about that in the beer yes. passage. Yeah. I could not assimilate them into my consciousness or something like that. But it's like, I think the longing and the, the placiness is related because whenever, because I also can't remember very many things that happened in my childhood. I think this is how humans are, but I can remember, like, for example, I remember the house I'm in right now, my, my so-called childhood. Yeah. It used to have all carpeting. It used to be like when I was really little, it was all this like kind of ugly white carpeting that the previous owners had put in in the seventies. And at some point, my parents replaced it or they stripped it to the hardwood floors. But whenever I think of that carpeting, it definitely does fill me with longing because I guess, I don't know, maybe that's the detail that evokes that time to me. And it's not even like I want to be a kid again. Right. It's, I don't really miss right. that at all, but <sighs> I, I was know. recently in my childhood home, so to speak as well. And it is odd as though even, even just being in that, in those rooms, like the, the geometry of that space did uh, like powerfully evoke a sense of my own childhood in me and, and probably even affect my behavior. Like, you know, I, I kind of st- almost start to regress just by being in that space <laughs> and I can kind of feel my nervous system almost calming down in a strange way or, but it's not, yeah, it's almost not, it's not conscious. Um, and there's like an odd spatial memory that is almost, it's hard to even articulate. 
Um, and I think that's the longing is the difficulty of trying to reproduce that spatial memory. I and really I, do. It's not, yeah. It's not simply, Oh, you know, the smell of home awakens in me. Yeah. The sense of being a child. Um, I mean, as this sense of memory too, is seemingly a random, uh, it's like randomly triggered, spontaneously triggered, right? Um, involuntary is the Proustian cliche, but I mean, he just ha but it all, it also seems important to me that he's trying to write his way out of the mess of the second novel. Right. Um, and he's feeling like essentially he's mired in artifice and in a kind of, um, yeah, false, a falsely formed narrative that. I mean, look, if this isn't him, literally him beginning to write my struggle, then it's at the very least strongly foreshadowing it. I always have a hard time following like the timeline of the writing versus the timeline oh, of the too, happenings yeah. in the books, because yeah. at some point they start mingling, right? And I they know. Start blurring. <laughs> so confusing. So you're experiencing the book as is being written, but at other, but then you're also not at other times. Um, and this became problematic for me in the second book as well, where like my struggle starts to e exist as a book in his life. So mm -hmm. when we yeah, get there, we'll have to figure out yeah. you. I think actually recently saw somebody on Twitter made a visual representation of the yes. various timelines. Um, I think, is that Klaus? I think it was Klaus. Let's, we should have him on the pod. I keep yeah. trying to reach out to him. Yeah. Maybe once we we've read more, to us. Yeah. we can have him detail yeah. the different timelines. Because I, I actually, when I read the second one, I made, I had to do a visual. And I'm, I'm like oh, well, the least visual person oh in the God. world. Serious timelines but within timelines. I, I had to like take notes. Not that, the thing is, it's not as though it really, on some level, it doesn't really matter because... I don't think it's the kind of book that lends itself to being like figured out inside some game, you know, but yeah, because you're one of the reasons why it's actually difficult to fall in that sense is you're actually just immersed in it paragraph by paragraph. So you, sure. You don't necessarily think about the global structuring of the thing. This isn't lost um, major. Yeah. Right. right. Reference. This isn't one of those prestige <laughs> TV shows that people devote hours to dissecting and God. solving on the internet although what what is ultimately the difference between the lost podcasters and us <laughs> oh god no don't say that <laughs> i mean maybe there's not much difference the remarkable thing was not that the face should be visible here nor that i had once seen a face in the sea in the mid-70s the remarkable thing was that i'd forgotten it and now remembered my favorite, almost, I love he goes, I threw the cigarettes, I threw the cigarette end on the ground and drank the last drop of the coffee already cold. Paragraph break, I saw life. I thought about death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I actually want to go Talk over about edging. Um, it's funny, too, because it's almost as though the forgetting... The forgetting is a necessary prerequisite for his writing. Like if he if he consciously tried to remember everything, you know, it almost wouldn't work as literature. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Because then it would be more I like wanted... autobiography, which is where you're just trying to draw out as much. Yeah. As you. But I don't. 
it's yeah again it's hard to track where his dis- i don't know if there was one like concrete linear decision that he made to begin writing but i do wonder too like if his brain started registering experience differently once the project began um oh yeah i do wonder about that if it's one of those Jonathan Safran for, oh, maybe I'll put this in my special book. Right. It doesn't, usually it seems emphatically not that way. Like, because part of the project is like, just as he has to, you know, clean out the his father's house, he has to work to, uh, what's the word? Reclaim. Yeah. Not, not even simply recall. It's not, but reclaim, um, and I think then, that's been a valuable distinction, recall or pres- reclaim. Yeah. And then perhaps kind of preserve to these things or uh, if not these experiences. Because, of course, then after he reflects that he couldn't, he only remembers rooms, he went into the street. I went into the street with a cup in my hand. Well, isn't that also like, him admitting that everything, the first 300 pages we've just read, most of it he made up? <laughs> that's another right i which is kind of a um big dick move to be honest a slight feeling of unease arose within me it's seeing it out here the cup belonged indoors not outdoors this this brings us back to what we were talking about with lorenzen remember how and you just brought it up too that he got frustrated with like a kind of spatial spatial mismatch in that section and here he doesn't like the fact that the things aren't corresponding with each other, right? With their spaces. A slight feeling of unease arose within me at seeing the cup because it belonged indoors, not outdoors. Oh, yes. Oh, wait, that's just like the gravel. Yeah, it's the same idea. Good. Outdoors, there is something naked and exposed about it. And as I crossed the street, I decided to buy a coffee at the 7-Eleven the following morning and use their cup made of cardboard designed for outdoor use from then on. Oh, my so, God. There's some, like, he can't accept that these things are out of their expected places somehow, or... Shit, I don't think I realized the parallel the first time I read this, of him being upset about the gravel and him being upset about the coffee cup. I mean, when things are... Uh, it's not even... A, is it? Is it simply that things... It's not only that things are in, not in their proper places, but rather outdoors, there's something naked and exposed so that... Well, I think it's improper in like the very Christian sense of the word. Right. That's an, yeah. But I wonder, it's almost, he, he talks later about um, the essence of, of things. And so perhaps this mismatch leads to, the, you know, a, a loss of the, of the essence of the thing, or maybe it's not simply a loss. Oh, like his entire ontology of his world falls apart if he takes yeah, something like that outside. yeah yeah i, I mean feel that. the cup he's in the street he's disturbed at this mismatch spatial mismatch the thing is denuded somehow the cup does that mean he's gonna pour the coffee from his ceramic mug into a 7-eleven cup every time he goes outside or will they just be too i'm separate? not sure or he'll the just logistics get of this He's buy. He's going to buy a coffee, so he'll and use their cup. Oh, I guess yeah, he'll use their outdoor cup whenever he, whenever coffee leaves its seemingly proper place. 
or what or the cup can't it's not even about the coffee the cup if it's going outside yeah. it needs to be a 7-eleven cup i, think I wonder how that it's odd because his way of writing is also so like based in things um I'm trying to think of some connection between this problem and then the emergence of Christ in the parquet. Oh, okay. But I'm not. I'm not sure there is one. But I, I mean, mean, a lot of Christ- the drama. He really like milks a lot of drama out of his relationship with inanimate objects. I can't think of an author who like because I think when you're in sixth grade, they teach you the man versus man, man versus world, and mm-hmm. man versus um, classic conflicts. Yeah, they teach you the classic conflicts, but no one ever teaches yeah. you about man versus coffee mug or man versus parquet floor. It's not even that he's uh, going against the object itself, but he's going against, you know, where it is appearing or um, where it's existing in space. Uh, right, so it's like yeah. A, it's like a, its essence. He needs to have it somehow maintain... It's essence, which actually kind of factors into his kind of reverie, I suppose, where he smokes his cigarette and he, as I said, he kind of submits to a stream of, uh, of detail of people. Um, Two middle-aged women came out of the yeah. below me and lit up. Wearing white hospital coats, they squeezed their arms against their sides and took small stabbing steps to keep warm. To me, they looked like some strange kind of duck. <laughs> yeah, he then says the, the, stopped, and the next moment, cars shot out of the hilltop shadow like a pack of baying hounds into the sunlit street below. It's oddly, I forgot. I was surprised to see these similes here. Um, he loves these. He loves his similes. That's strange to me. I forgot those. And the he's not—he's not afraid to use them. The sounds here were new and unfamiliar to me. The same is true of the rhythm in which they surfaced. But I would soon get used to them to such an extent they would f- that they would fade into the background again. You know too little, and it doesn't exist. You know too much, and it doesn't exist. So writing is drawing the essence of what we know out of the shadows. Um, part of his project is to especially in his seasonal quartet books, it's like the explicit practice to estrange us from mundane details and from everyday objects. So here, since he's new in town, essentially everything is still fresh and alive to him. Um, But then he says, you know, too little. And if so, if you know too little, you don't even have a vocabulary. I suppose you, you can't name anything. And they and they so things don't exist. But then once everything is nameable and knowable, you know you're like epistemologically dead. And so then you know too much, and it doesn't exist. Um, Isn't this more just a going back to the fetishizing the childlike perspective? Yeah, but what's odd too is that aside from a few similes, I suppose, um, you know, like the language of the noticing is not so there's not so much wonderment in that. Um, there's something it's almost, yeah, almost blank perhaps. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. This is a question that I've been struggling with in Kanazgard lately of like, is this itemization 
where's the emotion in it, essentially. Um, it doesn't feel blank. It doesn't feel dead. And he's not merely like reporting in a kind of, uh, you know, automat- automized way. But it's also not as though we're, we're not like watching him just, you know, describe ever- the light and kind of make it come alive for us in an uh, essential way on the page. Um, or even the children or what the details are like amassed. Um, you know too little and it doesn't exist. You know too much and it doesn't exist. Writing is drawing the essence of what we know out of the shadows. That is what writing is about. Not what happens there, not what actions mm-hmm. are played out there, but the there itself. There, the that thing. is writing's location and aim, but how to get there. What is there in Norwegian? <laughs> uh, uh, there-ness. Uh, the there-ness. there I feel like we have to know what this is in Norwegian. What if he's just on a nicotine high, though, here? That's what I also wondered. Better. Better. I mean, it's also true that... Oh. Okay. You know, yeah. Dao. Dao? He believes there's as such he... a thing as the dao. The dao. He believes that there is a, a noumenal dar. Yeah, that, that's also... Dar, yeah, noumenal is a good... A good word. It's also, it does seem like this segment is almost like like the secular version of somebody becoming obsessed with noticing Christ in things or something like that. Um, this is the question I asked myself, sitting in a suburb of Stockholm drinking coffee, my muscles contracting with the cold and the cigarette smoke dissolving into the vast mass of air above me. So this is when he enters the stream, sort of the stream of humanity, mm-hmm. which also brings us back to the opening pages too, so, um, of the kind of rhythm, these, these automatic rhythms of the body. Um, I think he's happy in these moments. I think he is. I mean, that's why I said it, it's almost like a kind of reverie. It's, a, it's a, a weird kind of reverie in a sense. Um, He's noticing all these details that are, are rhythmic, right? Like he's basically becoming part of the waves, the tide of this city. And he's thinking about his own place um, as a writer here. You know, basically he's, it's, there's a lot of like noticing things in a temporal sense. People go, are leaving work or they're going to work. The bell is ringing. Of course, what's interesting too is that when you smoke a cigarette, you're both highly, uh, your time is like compressed because you have basically eight minutes um, to smoke the cigarette. You're, you're at once like outside time, but also very like alive within a small a small amount of time. But you're like smoking a cigarette is like a, it's its own kind of temporal rhythm um, that also sets you outside maybe the grand narrative of time that's going on. I think there's also something to be said. He has this continuing fixation with discovery and enchantment, right? And I think right. something people usually like about cities is there's a constant sense of mystery and to some extent anonymity, yeah. right? All these people walking by you and you don't really know their true stories. Um, he says the less 
The less easily identifiable men and women who filled the streets in the following hour, who mm-hmm. soft, well-dressed exterior said no more about them than that they spent their days in some office and could equally well have been lawyers as TV journalists or architects, could equally well, equally well have been advertising copywriters as clerks in an insurance company. So he, he likes that. I mean, I think I, I see him as being very happy and enchanted in this paragraph. In this little moment of time, like you say, that he's carved out for himself with his cigarette. Right. In the same that's way not that just the heart... idle, right? It's just a little yeah. break. Yeah. So strictly regulated and demarketed was life here that it could be understood both geometrically and biologically. It was hard to believe that this could be related to the teeming, wild, and chaotic conditions of other species, such as the excessive agglomerations of tadpoles or fishspawn or insect egg where life <laughs> seemed to swarm up from an inexhaustible well. But it was. Actually, an excessive agglomeration could be applied to his own work. Seriously, um, yeah. But that's why I said there's also, it seems like even he's somehow submitting to the rhythms of of life, which sounds kind of cheesy, but um, in the same yeah, way that I the think, art, yeah, there's something yeah. very like the Lion King about this. <laughs> you know, in the same the way that the heart zoological. does not care. <laughs> yeah, it is zoological. In the same way that the heart does yeah. not care which life it beats for, which brings us back to the opening pages, the city does not care who fulfills its various functions. Um, and he likes that indifference. Right. I did wonder too, like, what's his function then? I mean, he's he's noticing all these people, of course, who aren't. Does the city need writers? Is there a function? <laughs> well, I think he thinks he stands outside of it. I mean, that's I think writers I mean, usually yeah. do. They believe they stand outside of it. I mean, that's the um, question. Like, although I don't know, isn't he equally bound up with these patterns and rhythms? Not really. I mean, and I think that is part of creative class alienation, not to get too topical, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, so-called creatives are not actually needed by anyone. (laughs) Right. Um, Or at least not for any productive purpose. Um, And especially, I mean, the pandemic, we don't need to get into it, but people working from home has removed them from the, the context of this, like, ecosystem which kind of gives you a sense of identity and purpose. And also, you know, Jane Jacobs is famous. Uh, what is it called? Weak ties or your second ring of acquaintances, people you see every day, but who are not close to you. Um, but whom, you know, maybe know their name. They give you a sense of being situated in the world. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things I really like about being a nanny is I have a very straightforward job and I am to some extent replaceable. Um, but I serve a, concrete purpose and i'm there with my colleagues in the park taking care of kids every day and i'm just part of the scenery um, right but all right but then and i don't have reaffi- to take on my writer's observer point i can just be yeah. there because to be he's sort of describing what the marxists call reification which is to say yeah. you're turned into it you're turned into a thing in a very crude way which i got in a debate yeah. about this with with friend of the pot ralph savory so i'll never forget it um <laughs> i actually but but it, it also actually that seems important too because it connects to like thaniness and the the lives our lives as things or and our lives in things and here these people I don't think he sees this necessarily in a kind of pessimistic or negative light as a Marxist might but um, these people are not even 
they're almost, they don't have a meaningful humanity. I don't know if he would say that, but they're reduced to these, these like automatic patterns. Um, they're almost I like, like that. And maybe things. that's like my yeah. severe alienation, but I like being reified. Right. I like well, having like an actual purpose, <laughs> you know, right. And being exploited for some specific reason. Whereas if I were a freelance journalist, I'd still be, you know, just symbiotic and writing about this thing or that. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of just a slave to the formal economy, I guess, but yeah, I don't know. Like, but I think people, people want to belong and yeah, but you're right. That is interesting how he describes this churning zoological phenomenon of the city without pessimism. It's just matter of fact. And you're right. Yeah. I suppose there is yeah. a Marxist, a Marxist would write about the scene in a very different way. Well, There's not like a, all these slaves to capitalism. I mean, I don't going know. You can sort of read it like relatively like re, uh, it could be an objective reading of like the situation and without being too propagandistic, but I don't, I mean, he, his attitude here. Yeah. Almost, yeah. It's almost one of um, something like approaching, I don't know if it's awe or reverence, but, is it like it's a kind of like calm? He's in a state of there's this, there's a weird tranquility about this moment. Again, yeah, I think he's happy. This is like the most peaceful he gets. He's, he's away from his children. Yeah, and, I mean, it's also, his children don't exist yet, but he's away from Linda. Yeah, he's in and, his, his room uh, of his own. He's in a room of his own. He's completely anonymous, right? And then even um, here, he's in another room, a room within a room, so to speak, because he's smoking a cigarette outside the office. He's at a remove from the da- these daily patterns. Like, he, yeah, I guess he is somewhat. Is I mean, is he detached here? Uh, yeah. Right in, folks. Is Carl Luva detached? <laughs> in this section. Just give us a one-word email. We don't need to hear anything else. I mean, that's why um, you know when it the sort of punchline of this section is that I saw life. I thought about death, which. I saw life it, semicolon. I thought about that. Yes, yeah. great semicolon there. I also odd life. because that's doing a lot. That semicolon. Usually, you, that's a hard semicolon. They use the semicolons completely and has just as comma splices up to wazoo. So it's got to be important. Right. He's not much of a semicolon. Oh, no. yeah. Are commas I mean, places okay in Norwegian, or are they just as not okay? I'm well, that's a good question. Actually, yeah. I think they might be more. I know that in German. Uh, and some of the other Germanic languages, comma places are not considered an error at all. And honestly, I'm on the side of the comma place. I think that comma places are often yeah. comma places yeah. are often more natural and approximate how we read than do semicolons. Um, yeah. But I saw life semicolon. I thought about death because if you put a period there, it would have just been like, come on, man. I mean, it's also That's another moment where, way. yeah, but he's approaching again, like. You know, bereft of context here, it would be cheesy. I know, yeah. Um, but you know, I don't think he has anywhere else to go. Like he, he had again. It's like that's why I keep thinking about a sort of he's like submitting to a greater language. Like this is when he uses cliche. You know, like at this, this in some senses, like this late in the day, so to speak, or like when every literary form has been exhausted. You know, you just, you return to that, this sort of um, seemingly debased cliche in a way that's not even 
parodic or 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 winking. It's just the only place to go. And here he's earned it because he is in this yeah. tra- state of a kind of perhaps tranquil detachment. Um, and I mean, also like I actually remember reading this the first time, and I was I did find it just immediately powerful and. You know, I was like, I my attention was activated by each and every detail here. I I was like living with him in this. Yeah, walking uh, alongside, or rather, state. smoking cigarette alongside. Him. I would, yeah, that's my dream. Yeah, yeah, it is, and that that is a powerful thing for a writer to be able to do. Very powerful. Um. Then there's he walks back into the office, and we get a phone call. Bring, bring. He also always tells us how many times the phone rings. He said earlier it rang five times. This time it rings twice before he answers. We should have. I want a sound of a phone ringing sound effect every time we talk about the the phone in this book. He's also not afraid to just give us like every banal dialogue, like the. There's amazing amount of banal dialogue. Just like utterly mundane. Hello, I said hi. It's me. Hi. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's almost comical. It's just it's, yes, uh, undifferentiated. You take the chicken out of the freezer. Okay. <laughs> I would not be surprised if at some point Carl Uva asked Linda to take the chicken out of the freezer. I hope defrost. Yeah, and then you. You can't forget that, and you fuck up dinner. Yeah, because then dinner's fucked if you don't take the chicken out of the freezer. In time. That's like a that's like a meme, actually. I've seen memes that about that chicken taking the chicken out of the feature, meat. like when you forget to take a defrost the chicken <laughs> after your mom calls. This is actually a very important thing we need to ask. It, it really is. You get him on the pod of his thoughts on defrosting chicken, and has this ever befallen him? Because it's it is amazing, like the things that Twitter like decides on as that are relatable or settle on. Actually, yeah, it is odd to be when it, I, I I was gonna say I hate to say this, and I don't know if I hate to say it, but just it's subjectively true that often I encounter memes now that do seem to access parts of my childhood that I would otherwise completely have forgotten or just not have any reason to think about. Um, like there are a lot of memes that are about mundane really mundane experiences of childhood, at least that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That I often think, Oh wow. This is almost literary in. It is, but it's like we were talking about last time. Is it so brazenly commercial because it's always for the likes. It's like, you know, somebody like fine tuned this meme for maximum (laughs) millennial relatability. (laughs) Right. And then at the end, it's like, Oh, also Totina's pizza rolls (laughs) by them. You know, like yeah, remember, that's what drives me crazy about it. Yeah, uh, remember defrosting the chicken? Also, yeah. um, <laughs> pop <Pop-tarts>. stamps dot com. <laughs> I know that's why it feels so. It actually feels to go against the kind of innocent yeah. wonderment that uh, this sort of memory project. Like, I would, I would be fine with it if it was a straight up product. But sometimes it's just yeah. for someone's own personal prestige. Right. right, it's like you know someone was like, I know I'm gonna max out on likes and retweets if I, you know, write this thing about, um, you know, commercials on that were on Fox in the early 2000s. 
But and is that? But, yeah. but I'm sort of heartened by these memes that bring me back to a kind of what seems to me, at least maybe for people of a certain demographic or class, like a kind of communal experience of childhood, which which is like whether we like it or not, our childhoods are mediated by. Uh, I don't know, consumer goods, products, right? Like it, it, it's true. It's it is true, true yeah. that like um, our memories are now bound up, like the things that um, trigger our involuntary memory are like Pop-Tarts and, you know, even yeah. this is almost like not even a grand insight. And now, and now it's even more like meta. It's not even the Pop-Tart as itself, but the meme like refraction of the pop tart. Yeah. But in but that just upsets me for some reason is that it's it's so calculated the memification of all these moments of our childhood. What is it called uh, like engagement farming? There's a word for it. Engagement farming? Yeah, yeah. Like all those tweets that are like what's something you remember oh, about? Oh god, I loathe 1999. That. I loathe yeah. That. But that's essentially what these memes are, even if they're more elegant than that. Like, what is novel just... writing but engagement farming? Canalsgard <laughs> <laughs> is the greatest engagement farmer. Remember the seventies, <laughs> Norway. <laughs> what were you listening to? <laughs> <laughs> that's literally what my struggle is. It's like engagement farming for like. For like what, geriatric Gen X. What were you listening to when you Namibia? when you made out for the first time? What were you listening to when you got to second phase with Hannah? <laughs> it's like engagement farming on a vast scale. He gets <laughs> What was your dad wearing when he became an alcoholic? classic 70s norwegian alcohol like that <laughs> remember when your dad became a norwegian Canadian? alcoholic dad starter pack <laughs> remember when your dad started wearing loose baggy clothing you found him and his friends they were kind of like swingers he just got back from soccer game remember playing football in the 70s tell me what did you, what kind of beer did you drink back then tell us in the comments <laughs> Norwegian teenager uh, 80s starter pack. It's like it's like a bag of beer. What is it? The type of belt that he wears back then? I don't know. Oh, man. The studded Even... belt that he wears. The Ian McCulloch. The... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I think this is a productive question. What distinguishes yeah. my struggle from mere engagement farming? Right? What actually... Makes it more than just. I mean, I guess if you had to be cynical, totally nostalgia, cynical about writing on some level, yeah, writers establish a brand and use a kind of you know farming technique to in- sustain it. But is it just that he doesn't know about that because he's so luddite? I mean, also, like, I think clearly, he just avoids the stuff so completely. It's like, I, I mean. It it hardly needs to be said that, you know, his motives go, they go, he's deeper, he's deeper. But, um, I mean, thing, yeah, I think he, consciously or not, is, like, trying to, you know, activate 
himself in but things. But the thing is, we do. We're constantly praising him for excavating these mundane details. And right. isn't that exactly what these engagement farmers on Twitter are doing? Like, No, it is. Like, there, I know there's a difference, but, like, on the surface of it, it's not... I mean, I guess... different. Uh, on some level, though, the problem with the in engagement farmers is uh, it also... It's, like, very it's epistemologically dead, right? It's like, it's not, there's no sense really of discovery or... Right, maybe that there's no enchantment. Wonderment or even, or even a kind of like stunned itemization that Ken Osgaard sometimes engages in, but rather a manipulative aspect. Um, I mean, it's hard to, yeah, there's something... And it's all part of a very specific story. It's... right. Although yeah. then again, as a as I said that it's weird that now our our childhoods have been memefied. So I guess the problem And also like, like you, what are Gen Z's, what are they gonna even do for their childhoods when their childhoods right. are being memed as they are happening? That fucks with me constantly. I mean not constantly, um, but it's just kind of a mind fuck. I mean, especially now mm. where it's like memes are constantly proliferating so that it's not even, I don't even know you can, you define yourself in a meme because by the time you find the meme, like there are 120 new memes that riff off that meme. Right. Do you think, what do you think has Carl Uva ever interacted with a meme? (laughs) I'm just like trying to imagine him like going on Facebook and being like, like he's not that. It's so true. Swedes do be that way. You know, like, (laughs) <laughs> like, like I'm just I'm just trying to imagine him chuckling a little bit like it's like tear coming out of his eye he's like the, the feeling when you forget to take the chicken out of the freezer is indeed one of mortification <laughs> <laughs> he's like ta- he's like tagging his childhood friends he's tagging, his, he's tagging Gia he's tagging uh, Pear he's tagging Ingva yeah. he's like Remember he tags his ex-wives. He, he tags his ex-wife. <laughs> Concerts in the 90s <laughs> were really full of guys like this. So true. <laughs> Laughing, crying emoji. <laughs> I don't know why this is like killing me right now. I know. I mean... Maybe it just because that would seem like such a brazen selling out of his, of his novelistic project that it would just be... And like him not realizing that his novel like is that. Yeah. I don't know. Oh man, that got me good. <laughs> that got me good. <laughs> Maybe. I want to just like if we ever have him on the podcast, just show him a series of memes and see what he thinks. Oh god, that might not go over Although, well given we, we our, bad, our recent we, we parades. Bad, yeah, we have a bad record with that kind of into into comic bits. There will be one guest that will go along with our co- our, our absurdist comedy bit. I know. We'll find we'll find that guest eventually. If it is <laughs> Carl of himself, so much the better. Just DMing, just DMing his friends on Instagram. Memes he saw on seventies Norway, seventies Norway Redux or whatever. <laughs> 
Makes you wanna flop down on it when a teenage car Everyone who took the 76 bus in Kristen Sounds remembers this. Do they have memes in Norway? They must. they must. If you're a Norwegian listener, which we have about a thousand now, um, send us some prime Norwegian memes. Like and also please translate them. Well, you'll long to reclaim it one sad day because that summer feeling will come to haunt you later in your life and if you wait till you're older a sad resentment will smolder one day and then that summer feeling will come and haunt you you'll find that summer feeling will come to taunt you that summer feeling like it had a vengeance gets you personally your life will hurt you. That summer okay, this is Rob. Okay. Welcome to our struggle podcast. Yeah, I had the Lauren Teixeira. That I'm in co-host Drew Oranger. That was gorgeous. I don't. I know. I feel that. like I was like blushing a little bit listening to it. We could just get him to record a version. Our struggle podcast. Yeah, I had the Lauren Teixeira. That I'm in co-host Drew Oranger. Hi, welcome to the Our Struggle podcast. Yeah, I had the Lauren Teixeira. And then, oh wait, so and if you want to say I, I am Drew, you say I. Yet. Wait, let me look at it again. Hi, welcome to our struggle podcast. Hi, welcome. Yeah, I had the Lauren Teixeira. Yeah, I had the co-host Drew Oranger. What's yeah, the word? Yeah, 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 yeah. Co-host Drew Oranger. And then is the O the O? I think there's OG is like their and. Okay. Hi, welcome to our struggle podcast. Yeah, I had the Lauren Teixeira, that I'm in co-host, Drew Oranger. What's the word before co-host? Oh, that was, and this is, that was if I was going to say, and this is my host, co-host. Oh. Just pay attention. All you need to say is, all you did. Yeah, yeah, uh, Drew Oranger. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> We're going to, I don't want to scandalize some newer regions with our. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hi, welcome to our struggle podcast. Hi, hi, welcome to our struggle podcast. Hey, welcome. <laughs>